0: And now we come to one of the most difficult areas in Bitochen and probably one of the most difficult areas in all of life, and that is finding the balance. If we understand that Hashem runs the world, so what is our part in it? What's our heshtadlis? What's our effort? If Hashem determines the outcome, how engaged do I have to be? How involved in using this world am I supposed to be? What does Hashem expect from me? <clears throat> What's the balance between Bitochan and Heshtadlis, between trusting Hashem and my effort? And to focus on this, <clears throat> I, I think probably the easiest way to start would be to focus on what seems to be an overt contradiction between two Gemaras. One Gemara tells us, <clears throat> The exact dollar amount that I'm to make this year is set on Rosh Hashanah. If this year I am to make a fortune, if this year I am to make a pittance, that exact amount is set on Rosh Hashanah. Chutz, with the exception of Otzor Shabbos, Tov, and Otzor's Torah. Three areas stand outside that decree. And monies that I spend on Shabbos expenses, money that I spend for Tov, money that I spend for my children's Torah education. In those three areas, if I spend more, they give me more. If I spend less, they give me less. Other than that, the exact amount of money I am to make this year is set. If that amount is $5,000, <clears> $50,000, 500000 whatever that amount is set on Rosh Hashanah. So let's call that Exhibit 1. But let's look at another Gemara, Brachas, <clears throat> that seems to be an overt steerer <clears throat> to that Gemara. The Gemara tells us, Tanar <clears throat> There are four areas in life that require chizik, that require strengthening, <clears throat> that require motivation, <clears throat> that require positive energy. What are those four areas? Torah, masim tovim, tefillah, vederech heretz. Four areas. Torah learning. Now that one's rather obvious. It's not <clears throat> so simple to see the reward for Torah learning. So obviously you have to be machazik yourself. You have to constantly energize yourself. <clears throat> you have to think about it. You have to motivate yourself. Because sometimes it's difficult, and it certainly requires chizik. Number two, masim tovim, good acts. A full half of my personality screams out that I don't care about anyone but myself. So for me to learn to be other-centered, for me to train myself to actually care about other people, requires chizik, requires motivation, requires drive, requires focus. Area number three is tefillah, davening. This also makes sense. Because davening is often very difficult. It's very difficult for me to recognize that I'm speaking to Hashem right here. Not 13 billion light years up there in heaven, but that little me, am having a conversation with the creator of the heavens and the earth right here. And feeling that, having that become my reality, is certainly something that requires and requires strengthening. So the first three in the list make a lot of sense. But listen to number four. Number four <clears throat> is Derech Eretz. What is the fourth area of life that a person must constantly motivate themselves towards, <clears throat> must constantly psych themselves up about? Derech Eretz, says <clears> Rashi, <throat> Im uman lumnoso. If he is a craftsman, he has to constantly <clears throat> motivate himself in an area. Im <clears> socher, <throat> if he's a merchant, <clears throat> he has to motivate himself as merchandising he's a warrior. He has to psych himself up before he goes to battle. What Rashi says is this area called Derach refers to all our engagements in this world before you go out into the marketplace and you study the opportunities you look at what's out there and you go out there with vim, with vigor, with energy. You study what's there and proceed with tremendous focus and when you come back, you re-psych yourself, motivate yourself again. And what Rashi is telling us is, when you're involved in this world, in any activity in this world, it requires chizik. And this seems to contradict the first Gemara. Because if I know that the amount of money I'm to make this year has been set on Rosh Hashanah, okay, let me work a little bit, an hour or two a day, maybe. But what's this chizik going out there, motivation, with drive, with energy? Take it easy. It doesn't really matter. Hashem determines what will be My job is to go through the motions, do a little bit, but surely not to be machazik myself, not to motivate myself, not to constantly get psyched up. And these two gemaras seem to be in contradiction. And what I'd like to do to answer this is see if we can tease apart the two roles here. To take and separate Hashem's role in the equation, our role in the equation, and then see if we can find the Pesha dover if we can find the balance in between. So let's begin with Hashem's role. <clears throat> What's Hashem's role in the running of this world? So let's focus on an interesting losa say in the Torah. The Torah says, losikam, don't take revenge. Now normally you assume don't take revenge because it's a humanistic, logical mitzvah. Listen, if some, someone did you a disservice, if you're going to take revenge, it's going to lead to... <clears throat> arguments, to strife, to machlokis. Don't take revenge because life will be better for you, for everyone as a society, as a group. Certainly don't take revenge because it makes sense. And while that might be true, the Sefer Chinuch says that's not the Tom of the mitzvah. The underlying principle of the mitzvah is don't take revenge because when you take revenge, you're imputing powers to man that he doesn't have. When you take revenge, you're implying that that human being hurt you. You're avenging the evil that he did to you, and you're saying with that that he harmed you. Says the Sefer you have to understand that he cannot touch you. If that pain wasn't coming to you, it wouldn't have happened. If that harm wasn't slated to happen to you, he could never have done it. By taking revenge, you're denying Hashem's role in the world. You're pretending that human beings are powerful. You're pretending that human beings can change your destiny. No human being can touch you. No human being can harm you. And explains the Sefer Chinech, that's why the Torah says, because I have to to recognize that he is not powerful. He's but a messenger. And this concept is the underpinning, ...of our entire belief system. The Chavez of Overs explains <clears throat> that I have to know clearly that no <clears throat> human being can harm me. You can scheme, you can dream, you could have the best laid plans in the world. If that pain <clears throat> wasn't destined to come to me, you cannot bring it about. If in fact <clears throat> my time was up, then you <clears throat> or anyone else could have ended my existence... And if you didn't decide to be the one to do it, it would have happened with some other thousand messengers that Hashem would have sent. <clears throat> but if in fact that bad was not to be for me, there is nothing <clears throat> that you could do to bring it about. And this cuts across the entire gamut <clears throat> of our activities and our interactions with others. He stole my client. He didn't steal anything. If those monies were coming to me, <clears throat> there's nothing that he could do to change it not my business life, not my social life, not my personal life. Throughout the gamut of the human activity, I have to recognize that Hashem is the one who controls the outcomes. And as you cannot harm me, there's a corollary. You cannot help me either. You could be the wealthiest fellow in North America. If I'm not supposed to have those monies, you will not be able to get them to me. You'll give them to me, they'll come in this pocket, go out the other pocket, exactly that which is supposed to happen will happen. My uncle could be the head of Sloan Kettering. If my time, in fact, is up, <clears throat> there's nothing that he can do to change it. No human being can change my destiny. <clears throat> no human being can harm me. No human being can help me. And if you'd like to see how far this goes, I'll share with you an interesting observation <clears throat> that the of Vavaz tells us. I had a teacher <clears throat> when we were little kids, who taught us how to, how to take a compliment. I remember very clearly she said, don't turn away, <clears throat> don't squirm. Look the person in the eye and say, thank you very much. Now that's a good life lesson to learn how to take a compliment. But I'll bet you never had a teacher who taught you how to take an insult. But what do you do? <clears throat> what do you do when someone cuts into you? <clears throat> when someone insults you? <clears throat> when someone says words that are extraordinarily hurtful? The Chovos of in Sharbi Tachon teaches us how to take an insult. He says you're supposed to turn your eyes heavenward and say the words, Thank you, Hashem, for revealing a little of my many flaws. I have to recognize that those words were not coming from him. If I wasn't to suffer that embarrassment, he never could have brought it to me. And more than that, if he wasn't the shleach, that exact pain I would have suffered anyway. I would have tripped going up the stairs. <clears throat> I would have spilled a plate of hot, hot soup upon myself. That pain <clears throat> was coming to me, and this person is but the messenger. I didn't ask you to be the nunnik to deliver the message, but those words are not spoken from him, they're spoken from Hashem, and I'm supposed to hear them. And this concept is so powerful <clears throat> and so pervasive that it changes every relationship we have with every human being. As a muscle, imagine the following. Imagine that we're in a large room. I'm speaking. Imagine I'm speaking into a microphone because it's <clears throat> a large area. And at a certain point, I look at you, and I start calling you names. You're a bleepity bleep. And I call you every name in the book. And first you turn red, then you turn white. And then in your anger, you get up, and you're, you're furious. And you run over to the loudspeaker and boom, punch it right in the subwoofer. Now, <clears throat> that would not be very intelligent. If you were to <clears throat> come over to me and punch me, we could debate whether that's <clears throat> a smart reaction or not. But walking over to the speaker and punching it doesn't change anything because it's not the metal, it's not the grill, and <clears throat> it's not the speaker. It's the person behind the microphone who spoke the insulting words to you. And I have to recognize that when a human being says words to me, those are words that are being delivered, <clears throat> being delivered, spoken by my Creator, and I have to recognize <clears throat> that no human being can harm me, no human being can help me, and all of this is directed by Hashem. And this concept <clears throat> is the basis of our entire <clears throat> belief system. This concept is everything that we do in this world. And as a muscle to fully <clears throat> understand it, the next time you're walking on the street, imagine the following. Imagine that I'm covered <clears throat> by a loose bubble. I could see right out of it. It's very clear, but nothing can penetrate. You could try to punch, won't come in. <clears throat> you could try to throw stones, it won't come in. Cars can't crash through it. When I walk the streets, Hashem is there, right there with me, protecting, guiding, forever there. And no human being can change my destiny That's the basis of our emunah system, the basis of all bitachon. Knowing that Hashem is there and no human being can harm me, no human being can help me, Hashem determines every outcome and it cuts across all human interactions, cuts across all areas of my life, my wife, my children, my house, my job, my promotion, my success. All of this, the outcomes are determined by Hashem. And that's Hashem's part in the equation. Hashem is the creator, maintainer, orchestrator of all the physicality and all interactions of human beings. So the question is, what's my role? What's my part? And to understand that, let's focus on a different area. Rabbeinu HaKai makes an interesting point on Parshas Noach. He says the Torah is very lengthy and very detailed in describing the Teva. The ark that Noah built was 300 amas long, 50 amas wide, and 30 amas tall. Asked Rabbi Bachai the question, what do we, thousands of years later, need to know the exact dimensions of the teva? It's irrelevant. Why did Hashem bother putting in pasuk after pasuk to describe what the size and dimensions of the teva were? We don't need that information. Rabbi Machai says the Torah is teaching us a very important lesson. Do the math. Let's assume that an amah is about two feet. This table was approximately 600 feet long. 50 amas wide makes it about 100 feet wide, about 60 feet tall. Imagine a boat that's 600 by 100, 60 feet tall, and then imagine taking all of the animals in creation and putting them into that boat. By the twos and by the sevens, the hippos, the giraffes, the zebras, the orangutans, the large and the small. Says Rebbeinu Ha'ai, you'll quickly recognize that all the animals in the world could not possibly fit into such a small area. Fifty such tevas could not house the animals in creation. The Bronx Zoo is on 265 acres, and it does not contain all the animals in creation. Explains Rebbeinu Ha'ai, that's what the Torah is teaching us. That Hashem said to Noah, you have to do something. You cannot possibly build a teva large enough to house all of the animals. But on the other hand, you can't do nothing. You have to do as much as you can. What can we expect a man to build? We can expect you to build something about this size. And once you've done that, then you're allowed to rely on the miracle. Then you rely on the fact that Hashem will figure out how to scrunch down the elephants and the hippos to get them to fit. And says, Rebbeimuchay, this is an operating principle in the entire Torah. <clears throat> the Torah obligates us to go in the derachateva, in the way of the world. We have to do as much as we can. Once we've exhausted the derachateva, once we've done as much as we can, <clears throat> then and only then can we rely on the miracle. But our job is to use <clears throat> the derachateva, the way of nature, the natural course of events. And explains, Rebbeimuchay, that you'll see this over and over throughout Tanakh. Look at Yeshua. When Yeshua brought the Jewish nation into Eretz Yisrael, they were fighting against giants living in fortified cities. According to the normal course of events, the Jews should have been killed. But the Jewish nation won every battle with overt, obvious miracles. Not a single Jewish soldier died. In one battle, one Jewish soldier died... <clears throat> and the question was, who sinned? So I asked Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, wait a minute. If Yeshua knew anyway that it was going to be miraculous, why did he tell the people, don your armor, sharpen your swords, get ready for battle? It was going to be a miracle anyway. He explains Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar that this is the principle. You have to go in the denrach in the way of nature. <clears throat> once you've exhausted, once you've done as much as you can, then you can rely on the miracle, but not a moment before. And if you'd like to see one of the greatest illustrations of this, the Chavos of Avos brings down a powerful example. Hashem said to Shmuel and I no longer want Sha'ol to be the king. I want you to go to Yishai. One of his children, one of his sons, will be the future king of Israel. Says Shmuel to Hashem, elich, How can I go? Sha'ol, the king will hear. If Argeni, he'll kill me. If Shaul hears that I'm going to anoint another man in his stead, he'll kill me. Says Hashem back to Shmuel, <clears throat> Take this eagle. take this calf. and tell Shaul that you're going to bring a carbon, and <clears throat> he'll fall for it, and you'll get away with it. Ask the wait a minute. This is a Baruch Hu speaking to a Novi Hashem. He's giving him a directive, And the prophet says back, Hashem, I can't do it, the powerful king. Powerful king Shaul, he's going to kill me. Hashem should have blasted him. Who gives life? Who gives death? Who runs the world? How dare you say you're afraid of a mortal king? But that's not what Hashem said to Shmuel. Hashem said, okay, you're right, do this. Take this small eagle. take this calf. tell Shaul you're bringing a korban. Explains the Chavos of The reason why Shmuel said this is because it was a makam sakana, it was dangerous, and what he did was right. <clears throat> and Hashem agreed, kavechal, and Hashem said, good, here's the plan. And explains <clears> the <throat> Chavos from here we see that even a Navi, given a directive straight from Hashem, is not allowed to put himself into a makam sakana, into a place of danger, because we're obligated to go in the ways of the world. We're obligated to use this world in the ways of the world, obligated to use this world in the natural course of events, and only when we've exhausted, only when we've done as much as we can, then we can rely on a miracle, but not a moment earlier. And I believe that's actually the answer to this seeming contradiction between the two Gemaras. Each of the Gemaras is correct, each is accurate. I have to understand that Hashem determines exactly how much money I am to earn. Whether it's a pittance, whether it's a fortune, and that dollar amount has been decreed by Hashem. And yet I have to go into the world in the dera chateva, in the way of nature, and go about my business as if it's my actions, my decisions, my hishtadlus <clears throat> that's going to make the difference. I have to know fully well that Hashem determines the outcome, and yet I have to go through the motions as if it's dependent upon me. And both realities are correct And both realities simultaneously have to be in my mind's eye. And if you'd like a muscle to what I believe the correct tishtandah should be, if you go to the circus, you'll see the high wire act. There's an acrobat up there on that tightrope, and he has a pole, and he does his whole routine. He'll walk, he'll flip, he'll roll. Very, very entertaining, very, very talented fellow. I believe it was back in the 1920s when Barnum and Bailey decided to add a little bit of electricity to the act. You see, if you go to the circus today, you see the acrobat up there, and you see that he's way, way high up, but you and he and everyone else gathered understand that if he slips, he falls to the safety net below, a little bit embarrassed, but healthy and well to tell the tale after. In the 1920s, Barnum and Bailey decided the same act, same high rope, Same acrobat, but no safety net. And you have to understand that this was a different routine. That fellow had been up there hundreds, maybe thousands of times before. Every motion was choreographed and perfected, but this time it was vastly different because one slip and he falls to the concrete 150 feet below. And that is a muscle to Arishtadlis. I have to be out there on the high wire. If you look at me, it has to look that I'm acting as if there's no safety net. I have to be out there in the marketplace, out there in the world, as if it's dependent upon me. And if I don't earn my income, if I don't win this game, I will fall to my death below. And all the while, I have to know that there's a safety net. And Hashem is there, Hashem determined what will be, Hashem is guiding, Hashem is watching. When you look at me, when I'm engaged in my hishtadlis, I have to look like there's no safety net. It has to look like I'm fighting for my life. And when Dovr Melech went out to battle, that's exactly what you saw. He went out to battle, and when you were looking at him from the outside, it looked like there was no safety net. He was acting as if it was totally up to him. And yet fully in his mind's eye, he understood that it's not up to him, it's totally beyond Hashem. There's a safety net, Hashem is guarding him. When he fought against Goliath, it was a battle. Albeit, without armor, David went out, but he took a slingshot, and he knew that Hashem determines the outcome, but he had to do his Ishtadlis. And that's ultimately the definition of what we do. We go out there in the world, using the world, in the ways of the world, knowing all the while that exactly that which Hashem determined will be, and knowing all the while that Hashem knows better than I what's for the best. And this understanding that we have to be very actively engaged in the world, that when you look at me you have to almost has to look like there's no safety in it. Oh my goodness, he's so serious, so focused in his ishtandlis. It looks as if it's dependent upon him. That is the definition of what our correct ishtandlis is. And what that means is, if I'm sick, I go to the doctor. But not to any old doctor. I find the best medical practitioner I can find. And if it's a serious issue, I find a second and a third. I gather together everything that's at my disposal. And then at a certain point, I've done all I can. I turn my eyes to Shemayim and I say, Hashem, I've done my part. Now it's up to you. If I'm to live and be well, that's your decision. If not, that's your decision I've done my part. I've used the world and the ways of the world. Hashem, you are the one who determines every outcome. A number of years ago, my wife <clears throat> broke her hand. A minor accident, but her hand was broken. We found the finest hand surgeon we possibly could find. And you just go, whatever, find somebody. <laughs> look it up in the yellow page. Go find a anybody. <clears throat> you look for the best you can find, because that's the derech <clears throat> That's the normal course of nature, that's the normal way of doing things. And when you go to work, you're very focused, very diligent, and you look at it in a very, very real way. You find the best possible work environment that you can find. There are many considerations, but the primary one has to be I have to earn this amount of money. And you go about your derichateva in the ways of the world, and you know that what Hashem determined will be. And this applies across every activity that we'll engage in. When you're going out to find your mate, there's a very real heshtad that you're supposed to do. You can't just sit back and say, whatever. In the right time, the right one will come. Hashem knows exactly who I'm supposed to marry. I'm just going to wait in the base medrash. Hashem will bring her to me. You have to go out there and do the normal activity. You have to go about the world and the ways of the world. You have to network. You have to speak. You have to do whatever you do that's considered the right Heshtadlis. And oftentimes it's difficult to find the balance. <clears throat> How much effort am I really supposed to put in? When am I supposed to stop? How much <clears throat> is it that a person sh- is obligated to do? <clears throat> when is he allowed to say, I've done as much as I can? And if you'd like to understand <clears throat> what the right Heshtadlis is, let's go back to our mushul, because I think it well defines it. <clears throat> Imagine for a minute the following. I want to know, what's my proper established for earning a living? Take Hashem out of the picture. You're up on the tightrope. There's no safety net. And what that means is, ask someone learned in the ways of the world, what is the right effort to put in based on my skills, based on the marketplace realities, and based on the size of my family, the amount of money I have to earn, what is considered the appropriate level of activity. You take Hashem out of the picture. You ask yourself, if I were a guy, if I weren't a Jew and didn't have Hashem directly involved with me as I do, what would a wise financial analyst tell me is the normal course of action? That defines the Heshtadlis, that defines my effort, and then I understand that exactly what Hashem wishes to be will be. I'm out there as if there's no safety net, And yet, all the while, I know that a safety net is there, Hashem is there. And this concept applies to everything. If you want to know what the right ishtan to do is, imagine that Hashem isn't involved in the running of the world. Imagine that it is up to your hand, your wisdom, your activities. What would the normal course of nature demand? When you get behind the wheel of your car, you put a seatbelt on. Well, come on, how many people get into accidents anyway? Now, 300 million people in this country, only 50,000 die a year <clears throat> on highway accidents. The odds are infinitesimally small that I'll, <clears throat> you know, I'm not going to get into an accident. But that's not <clears throat> the right ishtadlis. <clears throat> the right ishtadlis is to understand <clears throat> that Hashem wants me to go in the ways of the world. It's dangerous to drive. maybe may be dangerous in general <clears throat> to drive on the highway, but certainly without seatbelts. <clears throat> the Teva demands that I take Hashem out of the picture. If Hashem wasn't guiding my car, if Hashem wasn't guarding me every moment, what would be the right way to act? The right way to act is to buckle up. And then I know that exactly that which Hashem has determined will be, if I'm to live to 120, if I'm to get hurt, whatever the results are, completely me, it's Hashem, but I've done my part. I've gone in the ways of the world. And again, the way to determine it is to imagine if it could be that Hashem's not involved. And if Hashem is not involved, what would a wise Person learned in the ways of the world, tell me is the right doubtless that defines my effort, and then I know that exactly that which Hashem has determined to be will be. However, there's one very, very important caveat, one very significant proviso. Imagine the following: imagine that I have a retail store, and it's a very successful retail store, it's been open for 20 years, and I'm making lots of money hand over fist, I'm doing phenomenally. But you know the economy changes, marketplace changes come about, and one day my CFO comes in and says, "Listen, boss, I got to tell you, <clears throat> we're losing money. You know, they opened up across the street, down the block. If we don't open on Saturdays, we're gonna, we're gonna go bankrupt. We have no choice, boss. We got to open on Saturday. So <clears throat> listen, I say to myself, wait a minute. The derech ha'teva demands that I open on Shabbos. I have no choice, right? Because <clears throat> you told me." that we're obligated to act in the ways of the world. We're obligated to act in the ways of the world, and the ways of the world demand that I open on Shabbos, so obviously I have to open on Shabbos, right? Mm, Well, not so fast. And this is where things get a little bit more complicated. You see, the question I have to always ask myself is, why is it that Hashem wants me to use this world in the ways of the world? Why is it that Hashem wants me to work for a living? Let's keep in mind the fact that Hashem has a lot of money. Hashem has lots and lots and lots of money. Hashem owns corporations. Hashem owns real estate in Manhattan. Hashem owns diamond mines in South Africa. Hashem owns oil wells in Saudi Arabia. The gross production of planet Earth belongs to Hashem. Hashem has lots and lots of money. And Hashem doesn't need me to work to earn a living. The reason why Hashem wants me to work and to earn a living is because that is the ultimate life test. And that's an opportunity for me to grow, for me to see behind the veil, to recognize that it's not my hand, not my business acumen, not my wisdom that earns me my keep, but I have to be in the thick and thin of it, much like the most needed needs, because when they had needs, they reached out. When you're actively engaged in this world, and it really looks real, and it really looks like you have to pay the mortgage, you have to pay the tuition bill, and if you don't do this, you're not going to make it, then you can be tested, <clears throat> then you can grow. And the question is not how much you earn, but always how you earn it. Are you honest? Are you ethical? <clears throat> Are you no save no same emuna? Do you see Hashem in your daily work? And what you have to understand is, that we Jews have many, many commandments. On the 15th of Nisan, we are commanded to eat matzah. On the 15th of Tishrei, we're commanded to pick up a lulav. On Yom Kippur, we're commanded to fast. And during the day, we are commanded to work. Why? Because it's a mitzvah, much like any other mitzvah. Part of my growth Part of my changing, part of my becoming a different human being is being in the thick and thin of life. Some people work more, some people work less. There are different times of your life. But a major part of your life test is how you'll use this world. When you have to go out there and be active in the world, will you do it with a sense of understanding? Will you do it knowing that you're really not the one who determines the outcome? You're being filmed but you're operating, you're acting against a bluff, against a mop. And really, it has nothing to do with your hand. And the point is that when you go to work, you have to recognize that it's what Hashem wants you to do, and you're following the system that Hashem gave us. You're following the Torah. Well, let's come back to our question. When my CFO says to me, listen, boss, if we don't open on the Sabbath, we, we're going bankrupt. So the deracha teva, the way of nature, demands that I open on Shabbos. But I'm only using the world in the ways of the world because that's what Hashem wants me to do. But Hashem also said in that very same Torah, not to work on Shabbos. Uvi Yomashvi Tishbos, rest on the Shabbos. So I can't say that I'm using this world in the ways of the world because that's what Hashem wants me to do. When Hashem clearly said, don't work on Shabbos, and that trumps your mitzvah of earning a living. And this is the point. I have to use the world in the ways of the world as bracketed, as defined by the Torah. The Torah defines how a Jew should act, how a Jew should live, how a Jew should go through his daily routine. There are many, many restrictions, many, many commandments. There's a very exact way that a Jew is supposed to act. I'm supposed to be a responsible citizen, and I'm supposed to learn, and I'm supposed to daven, and I'm supposed to be a husband, and I'm supposed to be a father, and I'm supposed to be a member of the community. And all of the requirements, and all of the gedorim of the Torah, define how it is that I go about this Derachateva. So I act in the ways of the world, as defined by the Torah, as bracketed by the Torah. And obviously... I don't steal, even though it's the only way I could stay alive. I might be nefesh. If I don't cheat in this deal, I'll never keep my family alive. But the Torah said L-sig-zol. and the Torah has a very definitive way that a Jew should act in business, at home, throughout his life. And when I use the derachateva, when I use the ways of this world, it has to be within the parameters of the Torah's understanding. Because ultimately all I'm doing is using this world in the ways of the world because that's what Hashem wants from me. But Hashem wants me to do that under certain conditions, under certain ways, with certain understandings, to do certain things and not to do other things. And with that understanding, let me share with you an interesting example. Imagine you're, you're invited to a very, very fancy home. Huge palatial man. I mean, you walk in, the staircase is gorgeous. You see the rugs, the, the <clears throat> gilded ceilings, gorgeous place. And there you see Amishi, <clears throat> a maishi, successful partner law firm, but he's a firm guy. And he learns, <clears throat> and he dominates, and he gets stucker. And you're really impressed. This guy has got it all. <clears throat> Olam Hazar, <clears throat> Olam Haba, he's obviously the perfect blend. And you can't help but notice how put together he is. And at a certain point, you say, Moshe, you know, I can't believe it. Look how put together you are. You learn, you daven, you give stuck, you take care of the community. You got it all together. How do you get? How do you do this? How did you get so? So, how it work out? And Moshe says, You know, listen. I'll tell you. Many years ago, I made the decision to go to law school. Thank God, Baruch Hashem, I chose to go to law school, and uh, and law school took care of me. Now my law practice does very well. Baruch Hashem, I chose law. Not bad. Look at that. <clears throat> the guy's a mammon. <clears throat> Not only is he successful, but he believes it comes from Hashem also. And I believe that Moshi is exactly that. A mammon. Half a mammon. <clears throat> Thank God I chose law. <clears throat> Baruch Hashem, I decided to go into it. means, Hashem gave me the wisdom to choose <clears throat> this field, and this field now brings me my income. <clears throat> Baruch Hashem, I decided to go into this law practice. And this law practice now delivers to me my income. It's like a farmer. The farmer takes a seed, and he very carefully plants it. He weeds, and he waits till it grows. And when it actually grows, he pulls out the full-grown stalk of wheat. He doesn't bow down to the ground and say, Oh, thank you, ground, for delivering to me the wheat. Thank you, ground. He understands that Hashem runs the world whether it rained or didn't rain, whether it was blight or pestilence, whether it was disease that struck his crops or didn't, he doesn't thank the ground. And you don't thank your law practice or your medical practice or your business acumen, and you understand that it had nothing to do with any of the realities that we understand. Hashem is the one who determines how much money I have, and had it not been law, it would have been something else. I'm obligated to go in the ways of the world. I'm obligated to be very proactive. And I have to recognize that it's nothing nothing to do with this world, nothing to do with the SIBOs, the things that I choose. Hashem is a determinant. Hashem defines every outcome, sets it into motion, and determines what will be. And this balance is arguably the most difficult one that we'll be challenged with throughout our life. Both of these gemaras are 100% accurate. I have to go into the marketplace knowing fully well that on Rosh Hashanah Hashem has determined exactly how much money I am to make. Hashem has a very good understanding as to what my needs are. Hashem knows very well what I require. And I have to know that Hashem has decided exactly what I'll be. But I can't be lazy about it. I can't just say, whatever, I'll take it easy. And as a matter of fact, if I do just that, it's very unlikely <clears throat> that I'm going to get that which I was supposed to. Let me give you a Marshall. Let's imagine Shoshana. <clears throat> and imagine I'm in shul, my talus over my head, and I'm shuckling away, davening, davening, beautiful, wonderful. All of a sudden I hear a boss call, a voice from Shemayim. yeah, I was sent from heaven. what, I was sent to... T- what? Tell me. I was sent to tell you that this year you'll make a million dollars. Whoa, a million bucks, this is great. I walk out of shul happy as a lark. Now listen, I heard the heavenly voice, a baskal, a malach. I know exactly what's going to be. That year I quit my day job, I don't even look in the papers, I don't do anything, because I know what's going to happen, the money is going to come rolling in. If I do that, what do you think is going to happen? I'd like to share with you that if I quit my day job and I don't put in a normal Ishtadlis, most likely what's going to happen is that I'm going to go hungry that year. Because you see, when Hashem decrees how much money I am to make this year, there's a proviso, there's a Tanai. And provided I do what I'm supposed to do to earn a living, I go out and get a job. If I'm sick, I find a doctor. To stay healthy, I eat right. I exercise. <clears throat> Those are the normal ways of this world. And if I decide I'm not playing along, I don't like the game. I'm not going to work. <clears throat> most likely, what'll happen is that amount of money I will not earn. And I want to share with you another observation that's very significant. The exact same concept applies to finding your bashert. The Lord tells us, <clears throat> 40 days before a person's born. Hashem says, Bito, Laploni, leponi." Four persons born, Hashem says, For you, this is the perfect person, that's your bashert. That's perfect, sit up, my bashert. My bashert. It's gonna be great. Let's say a young man decides he's 25 and he's sick and tired of this dating game. It's rejection and it's, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm not getting married. What do you think is gonna happen? Most likely he will succeed in not getting married. You see, when it's bashert, when Hashem decrees what will happen, Hashem doesn't handcuff a human being to a particular destiny. Hashem makes it accessible and available. This is what's roi. this is what's proper, this is what's good for you. But you have to go out and do your part. To get married, you have to go out and find her. To earn a living, you have to go out and get a job. But bashert doesn't mean it will happen Bashar doesn't mean it has to happen. Bashar means that Hashem decreed this is what's appropriate, this is what's right, it's accessible, it's available, provided you do what you're supposed to do. If you do your Heshtadlis properly, if you're responsible, if you're prudent, and you go out there in the ways of the world, you'll earn exactly what you're supposed to earn, whether you do this or that, that or this, it doesn't matter. But if you don't do what you're supposed to do, then most likely all bets are off. Sometimes it is that Hashem will deliver that anyway. Sometimes for different calculations and different reasons, Hashem will deliver, whether it be the young woman or the money or whatever. But in most most situations, if you don't do what you're supposed to do in the Derachateva, you won't get it. And both of these gemaras have to be ever-present in our mind. I have to know that Hashem determines exactly how much money I'm going to make, and I also have to be machazic myself when it comes to earning a living. I have to go out there with energy, with vim, with vigor. <clears throat> I have to constantly read motivational materials if I'm in sales or if I'm operating a business, <clears throat> because I have to stay at fever pitch. Because I have to be very, very focused, very driven. And I can't let myself get down. <laughs> but wait a minute, you just you told me Hashem determines how much money. <clears throat> you have to be so serious, fever pitch, <clears throat> read motivational material. Why? Because that's the derech When you're going out to earn a living, that's the way of the war, world. If you go out to war, you engage in battle with tremendous focus. You don't just pick up a sword, hey, whatever, let's come on, we'll do a little battle over here. You go out to war with a very real focus, and you go out into the marketplace with a very real focus. I use the world in the ways of the world, and I know that exactly that which Hashem determined to be, will be. I don't take revenge, why? Because I know that no human being can touch me. You can't hurt me, you can't help me. Hashem determines every outcome. If you insult me, I don't scream back at you. You're but the loudspeaker. I recognize Hashem's involvement in every outcome in the world, and yet Noah was obligated to build that teva. Do as much as you can to build a teva large enough to fit all the animals in creation. We can't expect that from you. To do nothing also can be done. You have to do as much as you can. 300 amas, that's about right. And <clears throat> that's why Rabbi Mechai says that's how large the teva had to be. <clears throat> when Yeshua brought the Jewish nation into Eretz Yisrael, guard yourselves, put on your armor, sharpen your swords, get ready for battle. Even though they knew there'd be miracles. And when Shmuel HaNavi was told by Hashem to go out and appoint a new king, he said it's a makam sakan, it's dangerous, it's not the appropriate ishtadlis. And Hashem agreed. And we are obligated to go in the ways of the world. And that cuts across every interaction that we're involved in. But that interaction and those involvements have to be within the framework of the Torah's understanding. I don't work on Shabbos. I don't cheat. I don't lie. I don't steal. Because when I'm using this world in the ways of the world, it's because that's what Hashem wants me to do. I eat matzah on Pesach. I pick up a lulav. On I go to work because Hashem wants me to do this. This is one of the great life opportunities to grow, and it's defined by the Torah's understanding of how I'm supposed to act, how I'm supposed to do it. I'm supposed to be very focused, very, very fever-pitched, but all the while knowing that it's completely me, it's Hashem, and all of my actions are defined and guided by the Torah's definitions. And this is one of the most difficult balances we'll ever try to achieve. And this is one of the major, major opportunities of growth. Working for a living should be enjoyable. Working for a living is a mitzvah. But working for a living is one of the greatest opportunities for a person to reach a different level of understanding, a different level of recognition, for him to grow and reach his purpose and creation. And let me close with one last <coughs> thought. The Briska Rav was a tremendous leader in the class role, and he was also a yeshiva. And there was one young man who was in his yeshiva who was a very solid fellow, <coughs> learned basmada, did very well. And at a certain point, this young man left yeshiva and went out to earn a living, went into business. After a while, <coughs> the word came back to the Briskarov <coughs> that this young man now was not living as he had been in yeshiva. In yeshiva, he davened, he learned, he was a real powerful person. Once he got into business, he started making money, the davening started slipping, the learning stopped, and he wasn't anywhere near what he had been. And the reports kept coming in, and after a while, it was clear that this fellow wasn't a fraction of what he had been when he had been in yeshiva. In any case, at one point, the Briskorov had occasion to be in that town where this Talmud had now moved. And when the Briskarov came to town, many, many people came, and he was sitting in the room. And in the room, around the table, were many visitors. And the Briskarov would go from one person to the other with a quick exchange of words. And he would go around the room talking to quite the number of people who had gathered. When the Briskarov got to this Talmud, who was now in business, the Briskarov looked at him and said these words, "'Was machst du?' "'How are you doing?' And the previous Talmud said, Oh, I'm <clears throat> glad that you asked. My brother and I, we went into the sugar business. <clears throat> we were expanding. We are doing tremendous. We opened a second location. We are doing phenomenally well. Briskarov said, Oh, good, good. <clears throat> Briskarov went on to the next person, next person, next person. When he comes around the circle <clears> the <throat> second time to this previous Talmud, <clears throat> the Briskarov looks at him and says, Was machst du? How are you doing? And it was a little bit of quiet in the room because... The Brisker rov was not known to repeat things. The Brisker rov was extraordinarily sharp, and he just repeated a question that he asked but a few minutes ago. So the Talmud said to him, again, uh, as I told the reshiva a few moments ago, uh, Baruch Hashem, we went into the sugar business, my brother and I, we opened the second location, uh, things are expanding, we're doing very, very well. The Brisker rov shook his head and go, okay, good. And he went around to some other people, other people, other people. And a third time he came back to this Talmud, and he looked at the Talmud and he said, du? How are you doing? And at this point, there was a hush because everyone knew that something <clears throat> was brewing here. And the Talmud looked at the brisk Rav and said, Risheshiva, why does the Rishiva matriach <clears throat> himself so? Why does the Rishiva bother himself so to ask the same question so many times? And the brisk Rav said, I was hoping I asked you the question the first time. The second time, I was hoping at least by the third time you would understand what I was asking. I didn't ask how Hashem was doing by you. I asked, what's mach's do? How are you doing? You answered how Hashem is doing by you. Hashem is gracing you with wealth. Hashem is delivering that to your hands. There's only one thing that you control. Yerushalayim, Yeravodas Hashem. How you act in business is what you control. How much money you make is Hashem's part. But every time I asked you how you were doing, you told me how Hashem was doing. I asked you the question again, hoping that you would understand what your role was and what Hashem's role was. And I believe that that story encapsulates exactly this concept. We have to go out into the marketplace and be very focused and very diligent. Looking from the outside, it has to look like I'm on that tightrope, and there is no safety net, yet all the while I know there's a safety net. Everything is determined by Hashem. My job is to use the world in the ways of the world, knowing all the while that exactly that which Hashem determines to be will be. May Hashem grant us the ability, the capacity to think, contemplate, and put these concepts into practice.